And do turn with me to Esther chapter 5. Uh, that's on page 504. That's Esther chapter 5, page 504. Esther chapter 5, starting at verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out, her, uh, held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half my kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I'll prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and uh, Zephresh, his wife, uh, Haman boasted uh, to them about their vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. So that's just the first half of what we're going to read. Uh, later on, we'll be reading the second half together before uh, Richard speaks. Esther chapter 6. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's officials who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, 
For the man the king delights to honour, let them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife's rest said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who dared do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this Val Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realising that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banqueting hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told her how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. 
and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Turn that one down. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody. My name's Richard Collins. I'm one of the elders here at Above Bar Church. And it's a real joy to be with you this evening. You're joining us for the climax of this incredible story of good Queen Esther, virtuous Mordecai, and evil Haman. Haman, Hiss. Join with me. Haman. Hiss. Queen Esther. Hooray. Haman. Hiss. Virtuous Mordecai. Hooray. Actually, as I was preparing this talk, I wasn't so much thinking of pantomime, but fairy stories. I don't know if you noticed, but... Twice during the story, the king says he's going to offer half his kingdom. How many fairy stories do you know that go something like this? Good knights, if you return from your quest with the golden goblet or the white swan or the key of unusual quirky design or something else that I really, really want, then I shall give you my daughter and... Half my kingdom, and half my kingdom. I love fairy stories. But of course, Esther isn't a fairy story. It's history, real history. But it is worth asking this question. Where did the Brothers Grimm go to for their ideas about half the kingdom? Personally, I have, I have my own personal connection to Queen Esther, the story of Queen Esther, uh, from raising my children. Uh, they, Queen Esther appears in a fantastic animated show called Veggie Tales. Raise your hand if you remember Veggie Tales. If you haven't, you've missed something. It's fantastic. Larry the Cucumber, Bob the Tomato, or in my house, Bob the Tomato. So humor me, will you? Humor me, those of you who know this one. Sing with me. Oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, where is my hairbrush? Oh, where, oh, where, oh, where, oh, where, oh, where, oh, where, oh, where is my hairbrush? I could continue, but I won't make you suffer. But as I looked at this story, I asked myself, what is it that makes Esther such a great story? Esther, what a story. And that's where I'd like to start this evening. What makes Esther such a good story? People for centuries have been trying to answer this question. Why do we tell stories and how do they work? Because throughout history, in all cultures, we tell stories. 
and they display so many similar themes. Why is that? The famous psychologist Carl Jung talked about archetypes, which is just a fancy word for our unconscious themes which flow through the river of history. Sigmund Freud said that stories were ways of healing the fractured ego. Maybe I'm not a psychologist. What is undoubtedly true, though, is that stories are the means by which we attempt to understand the world. And when a writer writes a story, he or she is presenting a way of seeing the world. So here are two fantastic quotes. The first one by John York. All storytelling is an argument. All dramas are arguments about the nature of the world. And this one by Philip Pullman. All stories teach whether the storyteller intends them to or not. They teach the world we create. They teach the morality we live by. They teach it much better than moral precepts and instructions. So you and I, we are surrounded by stories all the time. We watch them, we listen to them, we share them, we enjoy them. A story is the best way of communicating. It is the best way that human be humanity has come up for communication. It is better than sermons, better than teaching, better than lectures. So here it is. Here is why you will almost always choose a movie over a lecture. Stories are the means by which we give expression to our deepest longings, our most heartfelt desires. And what are those desires? Love, happiness, significance, peace and justice. Perhaps we could include freedom as well. And our story here in Esther is primarily a story about justice. So here's a quick recap of where we've come to so far. This is from the beginning of Esther. Here we go, in 48 words. King Xerxes feasts, Queen Vashti rebels, Queen Vashti fired, Jewish Esther hired, Esther made queen, Esther wins favor, Mordecai under, uncovers plot, Mordecai in, insults Haman. Haman plans annihilation, Jews very frightened. Jews fast and weep. Mordecai appeals to Esther, brave Esther acts, Jews more fasting. Brave Esther visits king. Which brings us up to date in the story that we've just heard. Remember Philip Pullman said that all stories teach. They teach the morality that we live by. What does Esther teach us? Esther contains classic storytelling features. First of all, the inciting incident, 
Almost all stories have an inciting incident. The moment near the beginning of the tale when something happens to disturb the peace. In our story, it was the moment when Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. That's what launched the story forward. That's the inciting incident. It also includes dramatic irony. I love that bit in the story that uh, Joyce just read when the king asks Haman to describe someone virtuous. You know, how are you going to honor this man? You know, give him a robe and a position and a parade. And it turns out, what an, what an irony that that is going to go to his enemy. It also contains evil gloating. And if you notice this in James Bond movies, when the baddie, the villain says, I've got this really powerful weapon. Can you see how wonderful it is? Or this poison, that's how I'm going to get James Bond. And you just know somehow that it's not James Bond that's going to be the victim. He's going to end up drinking the poison or killed with that weapon. So when Haman says, you know what, let's put up a poll, or his friends say, let's put up a poll. As you're reading the story, you just know it's not Mordecai that's going to end up on the poll. But at the heart of the story is, of course, the bravery of the main characters. And I think we should just stop there for a moment. Mordecai is one of three iconic Jewish characters in the Old Testament. They are icons because they are an example of how to live in an alien culture. Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, and Mordecai in Persia. And of course, there's Esther. Remember last week, Callum told us that Esther risked her life in going to see the king. She took her own life in her own hands on behalf of her people. She risked her life. And I think we should just stop for a moment and ask, how is the story speaking to me this evening? Are you facing something in your life at home or at work where your integrity is under threat? A situation where it would be easy to lie, easy to fudge, easy to take the easy route. And God right now, right here this evening, is speaking to you. Let me tell you, just like in the story, God does not abandon his people. And he will not abandon you. Whatever situation you're facing, this story says that God is with you. But let's quickly talk about that issue of the hero of the story. Because as we read the story, maybe you thought that the hero was Mordecai or Queen Esther. Turns out it's neither. And that has to do with the way in which Jewish stories were told. In Jewish culture, they didn't start with the individual. They started with the nation, then the tribe, 
then the village, and then the person. Why is this important? Because of the role of God in Jewish stories. You remember that a couple of weeks ago, John mentioned to us that God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. It's the only book in the Old Testament in which the name of God does not appear. Seems very odd, doesn't it, not to mention the name of the hero? But actually, as the Jews would have read this story, they knew who the hero of the story was. God is the the hero. Always. He is always the hero of all the stories in the Bible. Always. He is the hero of the story because he is the writer of the story. And all the stories that have ever been written, ever, are a response to the big story, God's story, the story in the Bible. But Esther is a classic tale, really because it has a grand theme, the triumph of good over evil. And that never happens without a salvation figure. You need saviors to ensure that evil is defeated. James Bond, Spartacus, Ben-Hur, Gladiator, Paddington. Definitely Paddington. You know why we love superhero movies so much? The Marvel Universe. Why do we love those movies so much? Lots of salvation figures. And so it's a salvation figure who ensures the triumph of good over evil. I wonder if you've heard out in the world, they're they're saying nowadays there's there's no such thing as good and evil. You know, it's all just perspective. It's all just cultural. Well, they're lying. Go and visit Auschwitz if you want to believe that evil exists. Esther is a book full of virtuous characters and bad ones, goodies and baddies. And that's why the resolution is so satisfying. But what does it mean to say that good triumphs over evil? Stories are our search for meaning, but they are also about putting Humpty back together again. They are about making the world right again. And that is justice. That's the Bible's view of justice. It is more than just guilt and innocence. It is much bigger than that. When things are put right, that is an expression of God's character. And don't we long for justice? Just in this particular story, Queen Esther herself is effectively a sex slave. She is not Elizabeth or Victoria with banquets and palaces. She's a slave. And that's not right. That's never right, ever. Haman is not a vegetable. He is Adolf Eichmann, 
or Heydrich or Himmler. Genocide is completely wrong. Always, always, always. Wrong, 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 bad. Our world is broken. It's unjust. It shouldn't be. So who ensures in our story that justice is delivered? It can't just be Mordecai and Esther, can it? The story needs someone bigger, someone more powerful. And so what do the Jews do? They pray, they fast and pray. God is the saviour in this story. God is the saviour of the Jews. It is God who ensures that good triumphs over evil. It is God who delivers justice in this story. And how satisfying it is to see the humiliation of Haman. First of all, he's called to honor Mordecai, his enemy. Then he's falsely accused of assaulting Esther. He's hung on a pole. Then his ring is given to Mordecai and Mordecai moves into his home. It is utter humiliation. It is a fantastic end to this part of the story. And don't we long for justice like that? Don't we long for things to be made right again? Because that's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is when justice, God's ways, break into our world. When we, as followers of Jesus, display the attributes of God. And of course, our world is still broken, and we ourselves are not the way we should be. But that's just why we still long for justice. Back to Esther. Why does the story work? Fundamentally, why does the story work so well? Esther works as a story because it is given meaning by the big story, the story of the Bible. In Lord of the Rings, we look for the hero of the story, don't we? And perhaps we, at first we think, oh, it's, it's Frodo, that unassuming, that humble, frail character. Maybe he's the hero of the story. But then on the slopes of Mount Dune, he, he falters. So Samwise Gamgee, maybe he's the hero because he, he lifts his friend Frodo. Maybe he's the hero of the story. Or maybe it's Aragorn, the king, the brave king, or even Gandalf. And so we get to the culmination of the story right there inside the mountain. And Frodo falters. Step forward, Gollum. Could he be the hero of the story? And there's a fight and a trip. And then you realize None of these people are the hero of the story. The hero of the story is J.R.R. Tolkien.
He is the one that ensures that Sauron is defeated. And so it is in our story, the story of the Bible, that we have an inciting incident in Genesis chapter three. Humanity falls, bites a piece of fruit representing their rebellion against God. And humanity is cursed. We are cursed. And unleashed into our world is all manner of sickness and death and suffering and pain. And we cannot save ourselves. So God writes a story and creates a nation to display the wonders of his glory. Israel, a light to the nations. But the law he gave them was never going to save them. It was always pointing to the need for a savior. Which is where we come to the unique part of the story. And God does something that no other writer could ever do. Shakespeare does not live in the world of Hamlet. Dickens, you can't find him in Oliver Twist. But to bring about justice, God entered his own story, the story that he shares with us. And on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all the evil unleashed by our rebellion to save us, to make us right with him. But not just to make us right with him, but to restore our broken world, to defeat sin, death, and Satan. And in the story which followed the glorious resurrection of Jesus, which told the world that God is going to win, has won and will win this battle. He set in motion the story of the church, of those who are called to live justly and with mercy. And he calls us to live stories which speak of love and justice and joy. For he is bringing in his glorious new kingdom of love and justice when all things will be made new. He is the author of this incredible story. He is the one that we worship and he is without equal. And he will ensure that justice is delivered. And that's really why Esther works so well as a story. Because when Haman is defeated, we have the foreshadowing of the defeat of Satan, when things are made right. But maybe you say, you know what, Richard? I live with injustice. I've been falsely accused in my work. It's not right. My mum is sick. Can't pay my bills. I've got an addiction. You know what, you don't want to meet my family. It's just, it's a mess. You know, there's so much that's wrong. So much that's wrong. You know what the Jews did? They prayed. They sought God in the midst of their struggles. 
like you to think right now. Right now, there is something that you are facing, a struggle, a challenge. Just picture it in your mind right now. Just close your eyes. Heavenly Father, like the Jews, we seek you. We need more faith, that gift from you. We ask you to bring justice and strength in this situation that we are facing. Bring in your kingdom. Send your spirit. Thank you that you are a God of justice and of love. And lastly, I think I'm miles behind on these, aren't I? Oh no, there we go. Lastly, hope. God is worthy of your worship. He is a God of justice and of love. And one day, everything will be made right. My back pain will end and your suffering. It will all be made right again. Because one day, we will experience Revelation 21. Revelation 21, which if you don't know, you should go and read it after the service. The great passage when God makes all things right and well. And the Lord Jesus Christ says in that passage, behold, I make all things new. You know the last three words of the Harry Potter books? All was well. And that is our hope. And in the book of Revelation, we see the throne of God surrounded by angels who gather to worship the God of justice and of mercy. And we too, one day, will gather with the angels. So as the musicians come up right now, I'd like you to think about the issue that you were praying about earlier. All of us have something that we're facing. Most of us have many things that we are facing. I'd like to invite you as we worship this evening in song, that you come to the Lord where you stand, for we worship a God of justice and of love. Amen.